Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Are Here Tomorrow. As always, we are your guides to the future today. I'm Zach, and that other guy is John. I am John. Hello. And if you hear our melodious voices and are already like, dang, I need more of this, you can always find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or just go to our webpage at weareheretomorrow.com. So today, we have an interesting one for you guys. Some might call it electrifying, and some might even call it thought-provoking. We are going to talk about some neuromodulation. In common terms, neuromodulation is altering your brain's electrical activity to get a certain effect. And I'll be honest, when John brought this topic up, I thought it was going to be a little bit of decent science mixed with a whole lot of 21st century snake oil. Uh, we, we try to talk about the next 20 years of this technology a lot, and I really thought we were going to be grasping at straws when we, when we first launched into this. But... I was pleasantly surprised, like every other topic John brings up. <laughs> so neuromodulation seems to have a dedicated contingency in the academic and public arenas, uh, so DIY as well as more professional scientists. Uh, and moreover, I think this is sneakily going to be many people's first toe dips into biohacking, which sounds like a super sci-fi term, and it might you might think of a half-man, half-machine cyborg, but really it can be a lot more low-key than that. Uh, really, biohacking is just enhancing your body's natural functions just a little bit. That enhancement doesn't have to be laser eyes. It can be as simple as feeling the jolt of a cup of coffee, only without having to brew up that pot of bean juice first. If the idea of messing with your brain's electronics sounds far out and kind of mad sciencey, trust me, it kind of is. It's also cutting edge and maybe more impactful than initially thought, and most importantly, we think it's right around the corner. So we are your co-hosts, we are here to explore some freaky brain stuff, and most importantly, we are here tomorrow. So Zach, uh, at the University of Minnesota when I was in college, I was in a research lab. You, you know this. I do. And mostly what we did was, was listening uh, to the brain or the heart, kind of understanding what it's doing, trying to read what's going on in there. But we had one study that was a stimulation study where we were changing the brain a little bit. The technology that we're going to get into later, uh, we'll just call it TMS for now. Okay. We're, we'll break that up um, as we go. But one of these studies used TMS to kind of adjust the brain. And a little freaky piece of being in this research lab was that uh, us researchers, especially the, the the undergrad students, we were often the early test subjects. We were just you know around the lab <laughs> looking for something to do, help out. So they'd say like, "Hey, yeah, I've got this new protocol test uh, setup that I want to test. Uh, do, do, do you want to be one of the subjects?" And we'd be like, "Sure, that sounds interesting. Uh, good use of my time, I suppose." <laughs> you guys were just like one step above the lab rats. Exactly. Just one step above. We, we did all human study testing, so we were truly the lab rats in this case. <laughs> so this study with TMS, uh, I expected to be asked to participate as just one of the undergrads floating around the lab. And honestly, it kind of made me anxious okay. because 
I kind of felt like my, my brain had a good thing going. Uh, <laughs> my mind was, was working pretty well in college and I didn't really want to, you know, tip around the, the snow globe that is my brain and stimulate it in some way that I didn't really understand to help this, in this case, a stroke rehabilitation project that really didn't apply to me. So I was, I was just anxious and kind of trying to avoid that project. Not at all costs. I, I would have done it if I had to, but I was, I was glad that eventually the the project ended or moved on to the next phase and I was just never asked to participate. Okay. But that that idea of, of getting stimulation to the brain just just eked me out a little bit. And since then I've I've done a lot more reading obviously for this episode and more. And there's some really bold people out there experimenting in cool ways that actually makes the future of this brain stimulation, brain modulation concept. Uh a lot more interesting where I might be, you know, willing to jostle my snow globe a little bit <laughs> in the future. Prepare to have your snow globes jostled. Exactly. Okay. So, so we've unlocked a couple big ideas right off the bat here. So we're, we're stimulating the brain with some electricity. There's some sort of medical use for it, apparently, because John was, was in a research lab in college that was working on it. So, so where did this all come from? Um, we're going to kind of walk just as we always do through a quick timeline, just to kind of understand the quick history of neuromodulation. So it might come as a shock to some. I'm sorry. I was, that was just another pun. I'm sorry for everyone. Uh, Anyways, it might be shocking to some people that this type of electrical stimulation of the body and of the brain is nothing new. And it actually goes all the way back to the mid 1700s. It basically was a further furthering along of the fun prank of shuffling your feet across the carpet and shocking your brother with static electricity. And so that was the basic inspiration for some of the physicians of the time who began to experiment with shocking the brain as possible treatments for patients' various maladies. So this electricity in the body was super poorly understood. Uh, until really the beginning of the 1800s through the works of Volta and Galvini. Um, Galvini's nephew, uh, Giovanni Aldini, was actually the first person to experimentally show that a patient's mood could be altered with this electrical current in the brain or electrical current to the brain. And presumably back then that was a, they, they felt surprised maybe was the, uh, the change in mood because they were shocked by this electricity or I don't know, something pretty rudimentary, right? So yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the official, the official, uh, disorder of the patient at the time was melancholy, which <laughs> is, is basically just like an old timey way of, of saying depressed. Um, so, so right at this, even back in the 18, right at the beginning of the 1800s, we are uncovering a little bit of, of something that could maybe help us even right now. You know, depression continues to be an issue uh, worldwide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so back to the 1800s, they, electrical shocks to the cranium continued to grow in medical practice, attempting to treat, like we mentioned, depression, mood swings, and tremors. And in fact, Victorian physicians started to even give their wealthy clientele additional shocks that they claimed would cause euphoria and improved intelligence. Um, I, I honestly do expect that most of this experimentation was fueled by copious amounts of absinthe and weird old timey cocaine. But or, or maybe if their supply ran out, they decided let's just shock the brain and, and pretend <laughs> that there's some placebo of, of you know, drugs. Exactly. Yeah. So this medical slash recreational shocking of the brain, at which point had had started to be dubbed more officially transcranial electrical stimulation or TES, uh, started to enjoy 
widespread but super unregulated use up until about the 1930s. And transcranial, just really basic, it's a word that's going to pop up over and over and over again, is yep. just across the cranium, across the skull. So something that's outside your head is affecting things that are just inside your head, i.e. your brain. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's a big word that, that we can break down pretty easily. Um, so during the middle of the 20th century, the medicine inexplicably shifted from TS to electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Um, and, and electroconvulsive therapy is like kind of the scary older brother to TES, at least at this point in time. Um, if, if you're listening to us talk about transcranial electrical stimulation and the, the image that's invoked in your head is an image of a patient chopping down on a mouth guard and agonally painted on their face and the lights flickering and massive electrodes conducting electricity into their temples, you're probably actually thinking of some sort of dramatization of electroconvulsive therapy. Um, so TES, what we've been talking about before, uses a very, very small current, about the order of five milliamps. And current is like a small stream of electrons. Is that a good way yeah, to think about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any, anytime, anything you're getting from the wall, uh, anytime you get shocked, anything like that, there has to be some sort of current because there's a movement, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, and, and another thing to note is that when we're talking about volts versus amps to, you know, someone who's not used to those terms, they seem kind of magnanimous. When we're talking about the body, the amps are really typically the dangerous part of electrical current, whereas yep. the volts actually are uh, uh, a high voltage doesn't necessarily mean like a bad like a bad shock. It's actually to do with your current. Right. Current kills. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so anyways, the TES uses a very small current on the order of like five milliamps. And just to give you an idea of how small that is, if you were to lick a new nine volt battery, you're going to get a shock of about six times that or about 30 milliamps. And if, if that concept seems weird, that's actually very normal as a, a little <laughs> boy. I feel like every little boy has licked a nine volt battery and come out just fine. My, my dad definitely told me when I was young that that's the way you can test to see if the battery is still charged. Oh, um, 100%. Me yeah, too. there's definitely a ton of other ways that don't involve sticking a battery in your mouth, but I, I don't know. Those weren't shared. Or So anyway, so this electroconvulsive therapy is gonna act, was actually more on the order of like 800 milliamps, which is like 32 times the amperage of the traditional TES. And it was actually creating like an artificial seizure in your brain, uh, which was being used to treat major depression. Uh, it is actually in use today with, with some major depression cases, and it is actually very effective, but the days of it being super unregulated and a doctor just cranking the current up on a patient is, is long gone. So, so thankfully, yeah, that horror genre-provoking time of ECT was very short-lived, and coming back around to 1985, a new type of neuromodulation had hit the scene transcranial magnetic stimulation or this is the tms that i referred to that we were studying back in 2013 2014 exactly so so instead of having to run a current directly into a person's head tms actually uses electromagnets or some something to affect the magnetic field and artificially shape the brain waves in your head which is kind of trippy to think about now at this point in time we have kind of two verified ways of affecting the electrical brain to solve different types of disorders. TMS and TES began to dig out their own niches based on their subtle but impactful differences. And to this point, 
neuromodulation was being used as an alternative treatment to psychoactive medication and other things like that. We felt, or and no one was really asking this question, what happens if we hook someone without a major disorder up to a TMS or TES machine? Right. But fast forward to 2010 or so, uh, you know, researchers are normally with TMS and TES, they're, they're looking at medical issues. They're funded to do medicine things, not just <laughs> helping healthy people, you know, be better at life, whatever. So in 2010, Zach, you and I probably junior year of high school, mm-hmm. AP classes, kind of kind of similar to that college where, you know, we're, we're cranking on schoolwork and, you know, trying to pack a lot in. And I was doing that one night and I decided to take a little break, read a little tech blog. Um, and a new article popped up titled, improve your math skills by strapping this simple device to your head. And you can judge me all you want on (laughs) the tech blogs that I read back in the day. A, I don't read those anymore. And B, honestly, still good blogs, but just not my domain. And the reason why that, that kind of fishy title is actually pretty legit is 2010 basically marked the debutant ball oh. for this healthy neuromodulation. You know, improving your math skills uh, is not something that is given to someone that's having major depression. That's not what helps them. That's something for healthy people. Right. So so what did the, the article said? It said, people using TES while studying math could comprehend and remember what they learned better. The improvements from this therapy... Um, improved math learning for at least six months. Oh, wow. So pretty general statements and pretty long term, six months, pretty good. Right. And then if you go, you know, deeper into the actual scientific paper that is, you know, the source for this article, they, they try and hit a home run with this. They, they started <laughs> out with saying Dalton, Keynes, Gauss, Newton, Einstein, Turing, which are all famous mathematicians, are only a few examples of people who have advanced the quality of human life and knowledge through their exceptional numerical abilities. At the under end of the spectrum, up to 6.5% of the population struggles with even basic numerical understanding. They were going straight for the throat with this. They were, they were trying to rationalize that exceptional numerical abilities were just better for everybody. Okay, okay. It seems like they're setting themselves up to really under... Whelm when when they can't improve someone from you know basic math up to the level of Einstein, but okay, continue. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a high bar that they set for themselves. Yes. Um, anyways, I don't act on it at the time. I'm not about to shock my brain to improve my you know advanced placement calculus scores or whatnot. Um, but this did really uh, kickstart a bunch of businesses selling these TES headsets, um, transcranial electrical stimulation headsets to consumers like you and I. And then it also launched thousands more studies of similar neuromodulation headsets for healthy people. So before we go too much further into this, we've been using these these electrical kind of technical terms. Let's kind of break down how these two main players work, the transcranial magnetic stimulation, and then Zach, you'll cover the TES in more detail. So first thing you need to know is is how the brain is structured. Think of it at, at three different scopes. So at the microscopic level, you have these little neurons. They're the cells in your brain. And there are billions of them all connected in these crazy ways. Also, just to interject, uh, I've got a, <laughs> yes. I've got a video that, that like lines up with what John's about to say. So we'll post that in the show notes too. 
That sounds great. That sounds great. So neurons and neurons are all connected to each other. So you kind of have these circuits, if you will, these connections of a bunch of neurons together. And usually they end up clustering in kind of, you know, a small, tiny marble sized area. And then one kind of bigger scope, kind of the macroscopic level is in your brain, you have these functional groups where it's groups of neurons of clusters and, and circuits that all work together. So neurons, clusters, and functional groups. And the functional groups are the things you think of like, oh, his, his speaking is messed up because he has a lesion at that part of his brain. Right. So functional groups kind of start becoming like on the size where we can surgically alter them or maybe like at the very least see them very easily on like some sort of brain scan, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. And you can, you can kind of see the circuits and clusters mm-hmm. too. We're not good at seeing neurons by any means right. um, unless we're looking at them one at a time. Gotcha. So just a quick example of this is like the visual system. You have neurons that are at the back of your head right above that bump. Okay. And those neurons can see different things. They're kind of sensing different things. And then they're clustered together in these clusters V1 through V6, six clusters. And those six clusters work together to allow us the function of seeing. Okay. Pretty basic. And and most of the, the functional groups in our brain are more for like thinking and feeling and deciding, facilitating things that are kind of softer because obviously our brains are very complex and not a lot of it is the end result. A lot of it is just processing information and trying to uh, stay sane. Right. So now, Why was reviewing those brain basics important? Rather than affecting a large region of the brain, like a functional group, transcranial magnetic stimulation usually affects just a small region of the brain, about the size of a a cluster of neurons. And how it does that is actually pretty sweet. So instead of shooting electrons directly into the skull, like TES does, Mm -hmm. this magnetic stimulation creates a magnetic field in the brain. Now, electricity and magnetic fields are connected in this crazy physics-y way <laughs> where when electricity flows, like into your phone to charge it, good example, powering my laptop right now, the flow creates a small, teeny magnetic field around that cord. And to create a larger magnetic field, one can put a bunch of these flowing electrical cords next to each other. And, and bam, you've, you've got this stronger and stronger magnetic field, the more kind of loops of, of electrical cords you run next to each other. Yep. It's all in the loops. All it's in the all loops. loops. Yes. As if, if you look at some of the photos we'll post, there are definitely a lot of loops going on. So, um, great. Now we have a, a strongish magnetic field, but how does that actually affect a small region of the brain? Well, there's some fancy geometry the loops basically that allow the magnetic field to be focused on a small area about an inch below the electrical cords and about an inch below the surface of your noggin is the outer layer of your brain. All right. Okay. Still with me, Zach? I am. Yes. All right. Right on. So now this, this focused magnetic field on the outer layer of the brain pulls out another trick. The magnetic field creates an electricity flow. So it went from electricity flow to magnetic field back to electricity flow in the brain. Kind of crazy, but it works. Mm -hmm. And that electricity flow isn't the final result. The flow is usually so strong that in the brain that it overrides the neurons, overrides a a key point here, um, and it overrides them in this region to fire messages, the action potentials as they call it, to their connections, their other neurons. 
And when these neurons are part of a cluster, they kickstart a corresponding functional group to act. So if one of those, say, V2 was suddenly kicked into action, V3 would do something, and then V4, V5, V6, they're kind of all connected like that. Mm-hmm. So when you apply transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, to one of those those groups, actually in the visual field, you actually see a bright flash that, of course, doesn't exist, but you see it. You, you think that there's a bright flash happening, and it's, it's kind of crazy. As the person having the TMS done on your brain is what you're saying. Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. If, if, if they're affecting that, that uh, your visual cortex, is that what your visual cortex is? Yeah, 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 back of the head. Okay, yeah, so they're affecting your visual cortex, you're like seeing this bright flash. Yep, exactly, wow. yeah. And of course, it's not limited to just the back of your head and visual cortex. There's clusters throughout, you know, the other surfaces of your brain that are thinking and processing and will briefly make you think and process differently. Wow, that's wild. And and so this this is kind of like a short term effect that we've described so far. But that short term effect is actually turned into a long term effect by the neurons thinking that, oh, wow, you know, for some reason, the brain is really we're getting a lot of signals that normally. Um, mm-hmm. that we need to, you know, respond to. So they, they send out a bunch of different proteins and different building blocks and they rewire to respond long-term to those short-term flashes. Pretty crazy. Gotcha. So, and that's kind of, you're training your brain through firing those electrons or those, uh, neurons together. Yeah. Rather. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, we talked about it in prior episodes, neurons that fire together, wire together. So there's some, some kind of strength building that lasts gotcha. a long time. Gotcha. So now if, if you're perceptive and you're wondering about, deeper layers of the brain. We've just talked about that outer surface. TMS currently has to rely on stimulating the outer layer only, those outer clusters, hoping for regions that are deeper to be affected by it. And since the brain is just super connected, there's clusters that start at the um, the top of the brain and they they you know shoot to a cluster deeper in the brain. One small pulse on the outside of the brain can actually affect a far and wide amount of the brain. Almost all of the brain in a lot of recent studies they've shown are affected by just one one pulse of this TMS. Mm, that's really fascinating. And and to kind of like create an analogy here, hit home that point, um, for some reason I always think of the wolves of Yellowstone. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Zach. Um, no, not. But in short, in 1995, the wolves had been gone from Yellowstone for 70 years or so. And they brought them back. They didn't really know what was going to happen, but they decided, hey, we're going to bring them back and see if this improves some things. And the ecosystem blossomed. Huh. There's an awesome video that I'll, I'll share in the notes on this. But trees started finally to grow tall, and that brought in birds. And those birds, um, they would then nest in those trees. And the trees also allowed more beavers and beaver dams. And more dams allowed a bunch of aquatic species in the rivers. And on and on and on to some crazy ends that I would highly recommend you watch this four-minute video. It's got like 42 million views on YouTube as of today. So check it out. It's pretty awesome. Sweet. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. So that that's how that's how TMS works. You know, you okay. apply this thing to one little cluster, and then it has this cascading effect where it can change these functional circuits, these functional uh, groups throughout the brain, potentially for the better. Right. Okay. And so the important thing that I that I want to focus on because I'm going to explain the TES side of things now, the transcranial electrical stimulation. Right. The important thing for the TMS, the important differentiator, is that you're actually firing those those neurons, right? You're kind of overriding them and you're firing them artificially. Exactly. Override. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So with, with TES and, and just to 
put a footnote real quick. There's a ton of different variations of TES. Um, the most common one is TDCS. It's literally transcranial direct current stimulation versus transcranial alternating current stimulation. Um, it's it, there's a bunch of different varieties, but we're going to talk about mainly TDCS just because it's the most simple of the of the systems. So. At its core, TDCS is or can be a very simple system. Uh, at its most basic, it's made up of just two oppositely charged electrodes attached to your head, and then some sort of current modulator. The current modulator is literally where the power comes from, and you just turn the current up or down. Typically, there's some sort of like regimen or treatment uh, pattern that you would actually just run through. Um, and these modulators can be the size of a cell phone. It's super simple. Some of them even run on the, the aforementioned 9-volt battery. So once the electrodes are fastened, a current is then created from one electrode to the other, basically charging the section of the brain between those two. The, the placement of the electrodes here is super, super important because if you're not running current through the region that you're trying to affect, it's just you're not going to get any effect. And so this brings us to the important point and the big difference, I think, between TMS and TES is that unlike TMS, which is like we mentioned, is overriding, is artificially firing those neurons, TDCS or TES doesn't actually override. You're, you still need the natural neural firing. What it does is it makes it much easier to fire. By changing the ease we can theoretically strengthen the neural connections faster than normal. Right. It's kind of suggestive. It's like, hey, you it, should maybe fire more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a, a good way to think about it is actually like a pull-up. Your brain normally firing, your neurons normally firing, they have to do a full pull-up and come over the bar before they can fire, right? So you've got a whole bunch of work to get to the actual firing. With TS, imagine just having someone lifting your legs. You still got to get over that hump, but it's much, much easier because you've got this assist. Hmm. Uh, that's what TES is doing. It's, it's raising that bar slightly and giving your neurons a little assist so that it can fire easier. So another big difference is that you actively need to be doing the activity you are trying to strengthen. So, so for example, think of a basketball player practicing their jump shot. By doing it over and over and over and over and over again, the athlete is trying to strengthen those neural connections behind a quote-unquote good shot, right? Theoretically, with TDS, you should be able, the goal, anyways, is to make the athlete create those connections faster. So, and interestingly, TDCS can also be run in quote-unquote reverse. Uh, basically, by changing the polarity of the, the electrodes, you can actually make it more difficult to learn a behavior. So you can actually raise that bar uh, to neural firing, which is super interesting when it comes to talking about things like addiction or impulsive behaviors. Right, right. And so that's TMS and TDCS. And just kind of to kind of round this out, there's a lot of other different factors. It's not just choose your tool. Mm -hmm. Like you, Zach said, the location is super important. That's the same for TMS. Location is super important, but so is the number of sessions. You know, you can't just, you know, stimulate once and call it a day and have a, a ground breaking change. You need to keep doing things as well as, you know, 
um, there's different clusters that can do different things. So that location is actually hyper important, not just, you know, which side of the brain, what's going on. These clusters are very unique in what they do. And you move over one centimeter, you might get a totally different result. Right, right. Then there's also the type of stimulation, you know, whether you're doing a bunch of different like bursts all at once, or if you're just kind of repeatedly doing something kind of slow, all those do different things to the neurons, suggest different things, if you will. And then, like you said, those activities that you do during stimulation are super important, whether that's, you know, you're working on your jump shot, or if you are trying to do some, some therapy concurrently with it, some learning exercises. And, and with TMS, is it, that's also important as well to be doing the activity at the same time. I don't perceive that to be as, as important. There's, they definitely pair TMS with some other exercises, Okay, but it's not like you need to be doing the thing. Gotcha. And I, I honestly, I don't know that TDCS is quite that way, but I think it might be more that way than TMS. Mm-hmm. So, so somewhere in between. Yep. So where are we today with this like non-invasive brain stimulation things? So we're focusing for the most part on kind of the consumer, the everyday healthy person, but a quick little overview of what they what they have going on in the medical space. So typically this is, you know, where way more of the research is for this brain stimulation type stuff. And it's quote unquote proven to help treat symptoms in depressive disorders, pain, aphasia, movement disorders, stroke, as we referenced at the very top in our study, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, disorders of consciousness, Alzheimer's, tinnitus, and the list goes on and on and on. You mentioned addiction and mm-hmm. craving. That's on the list too. There's just so many things that it it seems to like somewhat help with. And it seems to be in that case, the more severe the symptoms, the more this these brain stimulations can help a little bit. So as just a quick example, I think this one's really cool. Uh, 2018, they did a study with about a hundred vets that had combat post-traumatic stress disorder. And they split them up into two groups. One group got a variant of TMS and some cognitive therapy. The other one got a placebo and that same cognitive therapy. And while both groups improved in their, their symptoms or PTSD, you know, decreased the TMS group, they improved about 50 to hundred percent more throughout the six month follow-up. Wow, so it's, okay. and, and that's a hundred, you know, vets, that's a hundred patients. That's, it's a pretty large size and it was a really well-run study. I think that is actually going to take off and become a standard treatment for PTSD moving forward, which is yeah. pretty cool to see. Or definitely like a, like a standard piece of the treatment, right? Oh yeah. yes, peace. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, a lot of these these brain problems uh, they require many things, not okay. just the one. Perfect. There is, I can't claim that TMS or TDCS uh, is a silver bullet in any case. Yep, unfortunately not. So, back to like the betterment of healthy people. So there's that research boom kind of started from that 2010 paper, and I actually wanted a quick review of that 2010 paper, like what's going on. Sure. So the the tech blog, just to remind you, it said people using. TDCS, in this case, actually, while studying math, could comprehend and remember what they learned faster. The improvements from TDCS-assisted math learning lasted for at least six months. And then once you dive into the paper, you actually kind of have to soften that statement a lot. They, they say the current results show that uh, the non-invasive brain stimulation can enhance numerical abilities with remarkable longevity, namely numerical processing and the interaction between numbers and space, which is kind of this, uh, you know, soft fooey thing, numbers and space with, with, uh, being important. Okay. It's because they created their own 
numerical language and they were just trying to see how quickly people could understand this new set of numbers and use it to do things. So it's it's kind of this really niche use case that they they found in 2010 despite, you know, all these tech blogs and other other things um making it a bigger thing than it was at the time. Also importantly, it only worked when you did uh, this the TDCS that Zach you were talking mm-hmm. about when electricity was entering the left side and exiting the right side of the brain. Really? So if you look if you look a little further and and you said that's important. You said Definitely. it's very important yes. to like you know focus on a certain side. But it gets really interesting. So 2013, someone clearly was like, hey, I'm going to try and do a similar study to this 2010 study, and. They what they did is they did uh, TDCS to the left side and the right side and, and a neutral orientation and that's actually the same thing for the 2010 paper and they studied something slightly different. Uh, they they showed that TDCS significantly enhanced performance in a number comparison and subtraction task. So a little different, but still you know basic math yep. let's say. And they found the exact opposite effects. They oh, found no. that it significantly improved performance, but only when TDCS was was entering the right side of the brain and exiting the oh, left. Oh. So the exact opposite. So the exact opposite, which which to me and seemingly the researchers means that um, you know learning fake numbers and comparing numbers are both basic math, math things, but they're on different brain circuits, different brain functional groups. So they have different dynamics. So they're different things. You can't just, you know, tune up math related, uh, learning. That's not how this works. It's kind of these very specific, specific niche things. It's fragmented into a lot of different little tasks that can individually get. That's, that's kind of like an interesting callback to our, uh, to our robot tutors or to our AI tutors episode. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because like that was one of the big challenges with some of these, with some of these, uh, AI tutors was that they needed to break down the information to be taught into like these smallest little fragmented bits and like correctly identify the difference between bit 998 and 999, which is crazy. Right. Right. And maybe, maybe this technology and, and that technology would pair well together because they can kind of f- target on these very specific tiny things. Oh yeah. But yeah. That, that seems further away. Anyway, so what's the rest of these kind of like healthy people benefit things? So a lot of the research is in the cognitive area. So for example, TDCS at some spot on the right side of your brain, um, it will improve problem solving, specifically improving uh, the eureka moment, kind of insight problem solving. Oh, okay. Not totally sure why. They kind of give some, you know, rationale as to what might happen. Yeah. Also, uh, TMS, um, it can sometimes boost empathy. Okay. Some studies show that. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, hit or miss every once in a while, but boosting empathy, pretty cool. Um, you can also, you know, humans are really crazy because we've got this this layer to the top of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. That's kind of the puppeteer to the lower layers of the brain. Okay. So if you stimulate this part of the you know puppeteer layer, if you will, the prefrontal cortex, sometimes that will improve the working memory. So you can kind of think about a lot of things all at once better, which helps with you know learning and performing complex tasks, et cetera. And, and with all these papers, is there ever an attempt to uh, like kind of break down the exact mechanism, or is it they're very much at kind of that that top layer of like, hey, we we know that we can modulate here and that we're reliably getting these results, but we really don't know why that is. 
Yeah. Uh, and I would quick, quick, make a clarification. It's not reliable. Okay. These are like sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's like a little bit over half, um, or, or so, you know, I guess I don't have an exact number, but it's not reliable yet. And we'll come back to that. And the mechanism um, research is definitely ongoing. It's just kind of hard and expensive to do. Yeah. So it just takes time to figure that out. And there's some, there's some kind of flies in the ointment they got to get out first before they can kind of, uh, you know, usefully apply that type of research. Absolutely. Okay. So outside of cognition, I was surprised to see this. There's actually a ton of research on like exercise abilities, studying both endurance and strength. And there's, there's still, this seems to be a, an area that's still very much up in the air where they're exploring just a ton of different areas of the brain to stimulate how they're stimulating. So a lot of apples and oranges going on here, but some common like places they'll stimulate are like the motor cortex that's in charge of a lot of, you know, muscle movement. And then the insular cortex, which is in charge of some, you know, nervous system stuff that could maybe allow us to persevere and push through, um, some endurance training. So the majority of these studies show modest improvement in the exercise tasks and many of the studies, um, a minority, but many of them show no effect. So the jury's kind of still out, but there's some hope that something is going on in that space. And then another really cool space is the self regulation space. Um, and that's, it's kind of a, a weird name, but basically it's looking into a ton of like addiction and food cravings, impulsivity, you know, it's our brain being able to control how we think and how we act and how we feel. So there's a lot of research in the space and it seems it seems that these brain stimulations can like slightly improve our ability to execute discipline and persistence and delay negative behaviors, but it's just kind of, you know, there's a signal there, but they're, they're not reliable yet as we, you know, explained before. Right. Yeah. I almost wonder if like, do we, uh, if we understand a ton about impulse control, like in a, in a normal brain, much less one that's being shocked by, by nibs. Right. Right. That's, that's definitely part of it. You know, we're using this, these, uh, brain stimulation nibs, as you just referred to it as a way to understand the brain, you know, we're both trying to use as a tool to improve mm -hmm. us or, you know, betterment of healthy people, but also just to understand what the heck is going on when you, you know, shoot this magnetic pulse into the brain right. or electrical. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so like a lot of times we do, we try and look at the consumer market to see maybe what's out there. What does that tell us about the next 20 years, or at least maybe the public thought about these products? Um, so the, the direct to consumer market is almost completely TDCS machines. Um, and that's not really indicative of TMS or TDCS being better or worse or anything like that. Uh, but to be completely honest, the cost of a TMS machine is not really consumer friendly. The cost of a TDCS machine is very low, relatively speaking. A TMS machine is probably going to cost you somewhere around the same as a midsize sedan in that order of magnitude, while a TDCS machine can be less than $100. There's um, kind of very sketchy knockoff ones that I am not recommending at all that you can buy from Amazon for 20 bucks. <laughs> So it, it is tough to see, though, what the impact of this technology might be, because half the battle is that that just acceptance of like, this is shocking your brain is not a scary thing. Um, and, and so I do think it's interesting to look at the, this fringe consumer market and to see who's actually buying this and like how they're actually really using it. Um, so you can we can thank Anna Wexler for that. She's a researcher that's actually done a ton of really 
cool writing into this type of technology and specifically like the consumer regulation around it. Uh, so she's deep in here with exactly what we're going to be talking about later. Um, but the she found that by doing an online survey of of someone who had bought a TDCS machine, the typical respondent was a wealthy, highly educated, liberal, 40-something male living in the U.S. who would call themselves an early adopter of technology in general. Um, about three-quarters of the respondents reported using it for this cognitive enhancement, like we were talking about, to maybe improve their math skills. Um, about, and right. the other quarter were using it for restoration. So trying hmm. to get back up to, to normal, to par. Many people were using it for, or so about 40% of people were using it for actual treatment, and then about a, th- uh, a third of the patients were utilizing TDCS to actually self-treat their, di- their depression, their self-diagnosed depression. The people who are using the TDCS machine or the TDCS technology for treatment of some sort of medical condition actually s- responded that they felt it was an effective treatment. However, the people who were using it for enhancement or just general restoration felt that it was ineffective. Hmm. And about 40% of the people who bought these machines also said that they stopped using the machine either to lack of efficacy, it just didn't really work, or they said they never even used the machine to begin with. And that was mostly due to lack of knowledge on how to use it. Hmm. So that kind of matches with with me saying before that a lot of the research is showing bigger effects if you have a bigger disorder. You know, yes. it's, it's easier to like, you know, drive towards baseline. It's pretty hard to go past baseline currently. Some things are, are apparently doing it and that's great, but it seems hit or miss at the moment and kind of hard to, hard to understand and execute to, to get consistent results. Right. I also think there's an issue with that, you know, that past neutral, that, that enhancement part where like it's, I feel like a lot harder to quantify that because we need to agree on what is improved cognition. Yeah. You know, it's really tough to measure. Um, and I think there's also just like placebo effect rampant throughout studies like that. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, so I do think, like I mentioned, like I was just saying, I do think that that placebo effect or self-fulfilling prophecy or the I've already bought into it mentality is definitely going to be a significant issue when we look at some of these topics, because we just don't have a good, like objective baseline for improvement past the, past the norm really. Right. I love the the DIY and kind of these communities that have these, you know, cognitive biases to, you know, uh, explore different areas. But a lot of that needs to be pulled kind of into a research capacity, unless it's obvious, unless it's like, you know, huge effects, then you can just, you know, quickly, you know, conclude something. But you might need to actually do some research into those cool areas that are being discovered. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the sometimes we like to bring up some of the premium products that are kind of in this space, and we found a good one called Halo Neuro. Uh, to caveat this, it harkens back to what John was saying about using this for fitness and for endurance and things like that. Um, that is completely what Halo Neuro is centered around. They're centered around some sort of skill based learning, some sort of physical skill based learning. It doesn't appear to me that they're using it to improve like math skills, for example. Um, it, it seems, just from a perusal of the website and of their product offering, it seems pretty legit. It seems like they have standard uh, or they have good quality products. Um, it seems like they're doing a little bit more complex form of a, of a general TDCS machine. Um, and their product is actually this headband. It literally looks like a pair of headphones. 
right? Um, it's made for training and, and there's these little, these little bits that extend down from the headpiece of the headband. Yeah. It looks kind of like uh, the end of an eraser. Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's probably 20 to 30 of them spread out across the headband of these, of these headphones. And those, I'd say even more, maybe, maybe 60 of them. There's a, there's a fair number. Yeah. They go kind of all all the way around. I suppose they do. You're right. Big amount. Um, but so anyway, so those are kind of the contacts to your skull and they're also going pretty much exclusively for modulation of your motor cortex. Like we kind of mentioned before that that's, you know, a, a band kind of it's, I believe there's John, you can probably help me with this. That Mm -hmm. is like right across where you'd expect a headband to sit. Right. Yeah. Yep. Basically perfectly under your, your headphone kind of line is, is two different, um, motor cortexes that can do some interesting things. Right. So that, that's a cool, um, I guess player in this market space to at least take a look at. They also are very good. They've got a bunch of scientific papers linked on their website. Obviously they're all backing the effective use of their product. So you got to take that with a grain of salt, but it's at least interesting to look at um, that they've had people come in and do some sort of research. Um, However, there are obviously those that are advising a much more cautious approach than some of these companies. Uh, In 2015, the International Federation of Clinical Neurophysiology published a position paper cautioning the use, this DIY use of the TDCS. And, and even this pro TDCS community, which is very, uh, they're very kind of dug in, uh, this pro TDCS community acknowledged that there is an inherent, if uncertain risk to their DIY usage. And in 2017, they actually got together with a, a group of medical professionals to try and lay out a guideline for safe buying and safe usage of these products. It should be noted that none of these TDCS devices are being scrutinized like other medical devices because, well, they're not medical devices, according to the FDA. Right. For example, Halo Sport, it's been ruled as a a general wellness device by the FDA. This is a category that the FDA has defined as technologies that are number one, safe, and number two, intended for improving performance of healthy individuals, not for medical use. That seems to align with kind of what we're talking about. And so really the the conclusion here is half-baked because it seems like there is this tale of caution, but we are very uncertain as to what what that long-term risk actually is, right? Right. And and granted, we've been studying this for, you know, three plus decades and there hasn't been some crazy, mm-hmm. you know, known thing that happens as a result of this stimulation. So we're probably good, but also we keep changing, you know, and refining our experimental approach. So there's things that just, you know, might pop up, but so far so good. It's kind of the way to think of it. So as we start to, we've, we've looked at today, we've looked at kind of what TD or TMS and what TDCS is, how it works, some of the different disorders they're used for, as well as some of the different enhancements they might be used for too. Um, And then we've kind of also looked at what is on the market currently in at least the TDCS consumer space. John, what do we think about the future of these products? I think we're going to start calling them nibs from now on. You might be able to explain that uh, and then kind of tell us what we're thinking. Yeah, just really quick, nibs, non-invasive brain stimulation. So it's inclusive of TMS and TDCS. But importantly, those two aren't the only ones. There are a bunch of other non-invasive modalities, tools that have kind of come up recently, let's say in the past 
you know, five to 10 years. Okay. So those ones are a lot newer and we just don't know that much about those. So we're just going to, you know, put them under this nibs umbrella term and important for nibs is, um, the brain stimulation It's it's going to continue taking off in the medical world. We're not really going to focus on that because we're kind of just focusing on the healthy person. And I think a big piece of, for the future of brain stimulation and a healthy person is to bring it home. You know, in clinic brain stimulation is useful and maybe more reliable and, and safer because you have a medical professional executing it, yep. but it's just too, you know, restrictive and too much of a burden, you know, not the average person can, you know, pay for a medical professional to keep facilitating this and driving to the clinic, et cetera, if they need to have daily, weekly, uh, treatments. So at home is really important. And as, as you said, Zach, you know, these TDCS machines are very simple and same with their other TES brethren, and you can get them for 20 bucks on Amazon or, you know, a nicer set for like a hundred to $300. So that, that seems very much in the wheelhouse that someone can just pick it up and mess around with it and, and see what I can do for them. TMS, you said, costs, you know, the size of a, a sedan, a midsize sedan. Yep. So there aren't any really like home options yet. That being said, we'll put a video in, uh, the show notes of a guy who just made his own TMS machine at home. <laughs> and it, it seems pretty costly, not, not too crazy on cost. It's like the, there's, you know, one of the components is going to cost like a hundred bucks. Another one might cost 200 bucks and the circuit's like pretty simple at the end of the day. So it's this bulky setup he has, you know, there's a lot of uh, bugs that he would need to work out. And it also is shooting, um, Zach, you're saying five milliamps is what TDCS was putting into the, the brain. Uh, mm-hmm. TMS is using about one amp through the loops that we we're talking about. It's not going directly into the brain. It's going through magnetic field, but there's just kind of a lot of, a lot of safety concerns that are, you know, worth ironing out before passing it on to your normal consumer. Definitely. Yes. So my projection is that, you know, more of these TES providers will keep providing more and more appealing products for you and I, so we can kind of mess around with it if we decide to go down that path. And I think, you know, in 20 years time, I bet you'll, you'll see some at home TMS machines that are doing the magnetic stimulation and it's being explored by biohackers, but it hasn't spread too much. So I think a lot of the focus will be for at home and for just your average healthy person will be still that TES, um, and all of its flavors like TDCS. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what John's saying as well. I think there's until we can maybe develop a more reliable TMS device, I think that's just going to be the state of the consumer market. Kind of looking at that consumer market and looking at it changing from, you know, more of a fringe market to more mainstream. What are, what are some of the barriers that we're seeing? there? Why, why hasn't it been something that maybe we're seeing mainstream? I mean, and when you look at a website like the Halo Neuro, you, you're wondering, like, what barriers do we have left? It seems like a cool product. seems like they got numbers to back it up. So what's stopping it? So firstly, I think the we touched on this a little bit earlier, but the accuracy and the precision of the technology, I think is going to be a big focus in a couple of the years to come. For the skills-based technologies, like with Halo Neuro, it looks like they've somewhat narrowed, you know, they've narrowed it down to the motor cortex. We know that's definitely where we got to focus. But like you had mentioned earlier, it kind of seems like the jury is still out where exactly we should perfectly be be stimulating the brain, right? Right. And very, you know, use case dependent 
for learning uh, math numbers versus math comparison. You know, those are different spots that you need to be uh, stimulating. So it's it's tricky for sure. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting uh, maybe grains of salt that comes with the Halo Neuro is that I think they're doing a very similar. Um, it looks like they have one device across many, many different platforms. So I'm wondering if it is as maybe personalized or as maybe uh, specialized as they try to make it appear. Right. Definitely. Especially if you're only limited to your motor cortex, that's, you know, useful, but only one of these many, 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 you know, regions that have many, many clusters that you can. Yeah. For sure. And, and speaking of all these different clusters and making sure you're stimulating exactly the right one, personalization, I think is going to be a huge deal that's just starting to scratch the surface with these devices. I think as we start getting um, more precise and more accurate, the fact that everyone's brain is a little bit different and everyone's just skull, quite honestly, is a little bit different, is going to start coming into play. Um, and, and never mind those weird lumps on your head, but even between left and right-handed people, there is a significant difference when it comes to where you should be modulating. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, like we touched on, I think safety is going to be a huge issue just for that public perception. Like many cutting edge technologies, we are totally or not totally, but we are somewhat unsure of some of these long term risks. Like John said, we've been experimenting with it for quite some time and it doesn't appear that there's anything too morose. But at the same time, it's something that should be studied from a clinical perspective. Right. And I'd add that, you know, another kind of barrier is this idea that you can have just opposite results with the <laughs> same type of treatment. Opposite being like, okay, this math thing's improved, but this math thing is worse. I think that that's a tough sell. And, you know, there's, there's a, a bug to be ironed out there. Definitely. Somehow. Definitely. Yeah. I think there's, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to see. And, and I think we're going to go there. So I think, uh, you know, what's also coming up next for a lot of this um, brain stimulation research is we're going to control a lot more variables. So some of these smallest, tiny changes to how you get your TMS or TDCS, where it happens, it creates these massive differences in outcomes, much like, you know, bringing in a bunch of wolves into Yellowstone, creating crazy changes. Go watch that video. It's awesome. (laughs) And I think, and this is kind of recent that we've realized that there are so many different variables that, you know, you can tweak and that have big differences in the outcomes. So I think you're going to see this cool, cool loop that kind of is a spiral up for the uh, abilities of this brain stimulation at home. So what I think you're going to see is is you're going to have more studies. There's still a lot of research going into the space, a lot of funding. So you're going to see more studies that control more of this variability, you know, they start to kind of dissect things and they're, they're a little bit more precise in their location on the brain and maybe more specific in the exercises they use at the time, etc. And as a result, you're going to get slightly more consistent results, which are great. And those consistent results are seen as more desirable. You know, that's going to make, uh, you and I, um, pick up maybe a headset and be like, okay, it's finally time that I start kind of exploring this and more researchers are going to want to start exploring it and more research dollars. And that's going to then make from the top more studies that have even more, uh, variables that are controlled. So you're going to slowly see this kind of slicing up of the pie into these little tiny cubes that do just one thing rather than biting into, uh, you have fruit salad and you have, you know, a bunch of different fruits. They're going to slowly isolate each little individual fruit so they can kind of understand, ah, this one 
type of treatment in this one area while you're doing this one thing and this one type of patient population does this one thing reliably kind of getting back to that reliability thing. Right. So eventually you're going to get a lot of that refinement and that exploration hopefully starts to yield like a reliable, like killer application of brain stimulation that kind of, you know, a lot of people hop on board the, the brain stimulation train and then suddenly, you know, you have a bunch of people that are looking for other uses for their brain stimulation device and you get a lot more discovery and development in these little niche areas. For sure. Yeah. I can, I can see that just as we start increasing the resolution more and more that we just start getting better answers. Yeah. A hundred percent. So transitioning from where we are tomorrow into what does that mean for, you know, where society might be going tomorrow? And I think, you know, there's some things that society will, will, you know, society will change and they'll let it change because some of them are good or some of them are just not um, something that we can really do much about. So one really good one is just this idea that uh, a lot more people will be able to go back to baseline. We talked about how, you know, it's tough to maybe go past baseline and do neuro enhancement. I think it's probably coming, but I think, you know, in, in the short term, I think you'll see people with say PTSD or just some sort of other trauma, other depression, slight depression, you know, you and I type stuff, they're going to be able to go back to baseline and have more mental confidence. Yeah. And you, I feel like you kind of see that a lot of times with enhancement versus returning to the norm, right? We're going to see maybe a larger push to return people back to the norm than I think at least at first we are going to see from that enhancement. Right, right. And, and even that study that you referenced that just, you know, looked at all these people using, um, using neuroenhancement and they found it's some like 40 year old virgin, <laughs> uh, is, is the prototypical character. 25% of them were at home brain stimulation users for restorative treatments. That was their intentions. Right. Let us restore back to normal. And that's absolutely happening. Um, you know, that, that is this back to baseline concept. Right. Absolutely. So another thing that, that will probably change and we probably don't want to do too much about cause it's kind of happening already is this idea of having some more identity struggles. So modern society, especially maybe in the West here, we seem to evaluate and value like who you are kind of quote unquote, as though it's like this fixed thing. Yes. And additionally, culture often values authenticity, especially lately. And that's, that's awesome. I love authenticity and, you know, being who you truly are, but there's some, some tricks in that when you have, you know, this neuro modulation, neuro change enhancement in some cases, um, where they're changing how you behave and how you think. So, you know, what is authentic? Like, what is me? Who, who am I? Am I, I'm kind of being changed by this tool that I'm, my doctor tells me I should be taking, but it's changing who I am. What is my identity at the end of the day? So some people will, you know, embrace the change because, because it's, they're doing it hopefully for the better, Mm -hmm. but some people will probably struggle with this kind of like, ah, I am a cyborg in some (laughs) kind of like, you know, weird way. And you know, how do you accept that concept? I don't know, but we're already kind of going through this with antidepressants and a bunch of other just technology in general is we are already cyborgs and who we are is changing and we're kind of weird. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know who John Mundahl is if he's born in the 1600s. Even arguably then, we had technology doing right. stuff too. Okay, so yeah, another thing I think when we're looking at societal impacts is do we have something that's going to start separating a group of people? Are we, are we going to need new rules to kind of regulate this, this separation and this exclusivity? I think there's an ethical line when you're looking at the performance enhancers and 
or at these performance enhancers. Ethical line lays in this like must-have concept, right? So if this technology becomes so ubiquitous to the modern consumer that it's, you know, I must have this in order to even you know, survive in the modern context, then it kind of starts taking the choice of the user into the company's hands, right? Into the person supplying this technology. Sure, sure. Like steroids, if steroids are illegal, and I think they are in some weightlifting, you're not going to compete if you aren't taking steroids. Classic example. Yep. Must have its table stakes to be any good and to operate in that realm. Right, exactly. I know like this is like a bleak example, but I remember this. I remember this slogan being like, wow, that is kind of gross. Um, I think it was back in 2013. Uh, Apple, the iPhone, had a marketing slogan that was, if you don't have an iPhone, well, then I guess you don't have an iPhone. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of like that that weird branding of that same idea is that like in order for you to come to the table and just be an equal in any capacity, like you must have this thing. Right. It's not enough for you to come naturally. Like you must have this yeah. enhancement just to be on well, par with everyone else. Right. Otherwise you are below below us. Right. Yeah. And then of course then that starts becoming more of a privilege thing if there's an exuberant cost involved, right? So mm-hmm. if you can afford this very, very effective TDS headset that get, makes you smarter, but it's twenty thousand dollars, the the kids whose parents are millionaires are absolutely going to be able to provide that to their children. Their children are then going to do better in school than the the natural kids, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So very quickly you start seeing this this separation of privilege, right? As always, of course. Um, another one that that John and I kind of tossed back and forth was the you know recreational use to an extreme, recreational use as like a party drug um, or some sort of. Uh, some sort of enjoyment out of these where you're not even you're not even treating for a utilitarian enhancement it's it's just for the fun of it there's some anecdotal evidence that it it may affect your your highs during different types of drug trips you can go to reddit of course for that Um, i wouldn't recommend doing anything that they have to say on those forums Uh, they also include strapping the tds electrodes to bits that aren't they're not recommended for so again all very anecdotal evidence Mm-hmm. However, while there's, this is obviously not for parties, there's some researchers out of the University of Michigan uh, that were able to actually stimulate the release of some natural opioid, opioids in the body through hmm. TDS. And so it's interesting to see um, that possibility of maybe unlocking different types of hormone levels through this brain modulation or through this neuromodulation. For some reason, this makes me think of the movie Inception, where you have a bunch of people, and I think they're actually taking, I think about it like drugs, but they're kind of all laying down and they're in this mm-hmm. dream world because, you know, they can. And, and I don't know, maybe that's some crazy thing that this allows you to get in some sort of interesting uh, vegetative state that allows crazy mind trips. And it's a little, little more, you know, fun to live in your brain than like in the world. That's a little foo foo and over <laughs> the edge, but. I don't know. The brain's crazy. So, yeah, I think the use of it being a party drug or for any sort of enjoyment, I think while it has some fun, interesting ideas in like sci-fi technology, I don't really think it's something that we're going to see too immediately on on the scene here. Um, yeah, not not probably in the next 20 years, but 
people love drugs and they love changing their mental states. <laughs> yes, so it's kind of always something that you need to look out for. It's, it seems very possible that something just bubbles up to the top and spreads quickly. Who knows? That could be the killer app. Yeah. And that, I think that's something that you're going to see bubble up in that DIY community. I don't think we're going to see something like that come out of a come out of an academic house. Do you? Probably not. Probably yes. not. No. So another cool area to think about for societal impact is what happens when uh, they, they've already done research that shows that some of these um, brain stimulations can change morals, you know, align stronger with altruism, with fairness, with logic. What happens when certain communities or roles require you or heavily incentivize you to get one of these neuro enhancements so that you're, you know, more pro-social or more competitive or, or whatnot. That seems, you know, kind of tricky and, and changing your brain like that is is something that we haven't really messed with. So one one example that maybe makes sense, honestly, is the idea of like public servants, say judges, for example, you know, you're performing this job and you're trying to do it as close to perfection as possible. If the cost and the risk um, of taking one of these brain stimulation neuroenhancement treatments isn't too much, and the benefit is that you are more logical and can actually follow, you know, uh, clinical or proceedings. I say clinical, judicial proceedings without you know as much emotion, which I honestly don't think is a big problem right now. Mm-hmm. But who knows? I don't know my judicial space. Maybe they would be forced to get that treatment. That seems kind of tricky. Uh, is that something that we want as a society? It might benefit us, but we're st- restricting this judge's ability to, you know, be authentic. I guess kind of kind of from that perspective. Definitely. Another side is disciplined individuals like inmates. You know, a judge could rule that you need a mandatory neuro enhancement so that you're more altruistic, that you, you know, aren't going to return to jail as much and commit as many crimes. And yeah, I think this is actually played out a little bit in a minority report. I don't know if you remember the, uh, the jail they have is like, uh, I don't remember. It's essentially, you're just in a pod, but you've got this, this thin headband on and it keeps you asleep. Huh. Um, so yeah, it looks, it looks very, and it's got like two little electrode connections on the tempo. It looks very much like a like a futuristic TDCS machine. But anyways, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's there's definitely a parallel there. I mean, it could be used as like a bargaining chip too. For like, sure. hey, if you decide to, you know, take the blue pill, you'll get out of jail a little earlier. Yes. And that's kind of a scary, but, but potentially useful, though I don't think that's, you know, the primary thing that jailed individuals, you know, need from the community. Mm-hmm. Another thing is just the idea of like risk reduction. Uh, there's a paper that brought up the idea that maybe insurance company would say, hey, we'll offer you a discount if you take this neuroenhancement because you're going to be a safer driver. Is that something that we're going to allow? You know, some people that don't have the money that need the discount, maybe they end up having to take the neuroenhancement just to save money or someone that can blow money and probably already gets, you know, more speeding tickets uh, or I should say they speed <laughs> more than, than the average person. Um, they, you know, don't need to go down that path because they've got the money to, right. to pay for it. Where, where does society like draw this line? Right. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, and yeah, another, another like cool sci-fi kind of expose on this is if I know John and I have, have both are in the process of reading the expanse, uh, the expanse novels. Um, there's a mm-hmm. cool, a cool character built off this idea of a synthetic psychopath basic or a synthetic sociopath basically. Um, And the thought is in in the book, it's a scientist that has been had their minds 
altered so that they lack empathy and therefore can do their scientific research without the you know barriers of morality or anything like that. Right. Presumably their company paid them to get this this treatment so that exactly. they can, you know, make the company uh, more money and kind of crazier technology. Right. Yeah. In the in the show, they definitely leaned into the fact that it was possibly just some sort of magnet that was waved over a brain, uh, which is really cool, again, because it's kind of that that weird fringe technology seeping into our, our modern sci fi. Right. Um, but yeah, basically that's a, that's a weird thought that if, if we can pinpoint the parts of the brain, um, oh, so there was actually a study showing that they, they can reliably pinpoint some neurological basis, some physical basis for a, a lack of empathy that is present in, in socio or in psychopaths rather. Hmm. And so I think like, it'd be interesting to see if the reverse is true. Basically, if we can pinpoint these parts of the brain that have an effect on empathy, can we artificially turn them off? Can we artificially turn them on for violent offenders? And hopefully, you know, like you had said, maybe it's part of a more synthetic rehabilitation. Or is you know, the flip side, the scarier part, can we turn it off and kind of create some monsters? <laughs> right, okay. So those are some pretty interesting possible effects of this technology as it maybe rolls out in the next 20 years. What's kind of your takeaway, Zach? What are you kind of thinking about, uh, you know, when you go to bed tonight, what's going to be on your mind and keeping you up as you clearly don't get very good <laughs> sleep, as you said? Uh, yeah, I think the point that you made about that authenticity, right, is where do we, do we value that natural authenticity of a person more than we value that enhanced person? I don't think that's crazy question to ask. And I don't know that there's really a wrong answer there or a right answer there. To be honest, I think there are certain situations where that enhanced person would, you know, in all respects, be maybe the better version. But is that cost of being a quote unquote better you worth getting rid of the old natural you? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. that's cool. Like moving forward just with technology in general is how does that, how does the technology that we surround ourselves with kind of shape our thoughts and, and ideas and personifications of us. Right. And it's, it's cool to like think of it in the future. Cause it's also going on like right now, you know, so oh, much yeah. of, of, uh, technology is changing who we are right now. The fact that I'm, you know, speaking into a microphone, looking at you on face, uh, FaceTime, like that's not something that, you know, would happen a hundred years ago. And therefore I would be doing something differently. I'd be thinking differently, all those different things that technology just is already sweeping through our human system. Oh yeah, definitely. So, what am I thinking about mm -hmm. when I when I go to bed and get yes. that great sleep? The exact eight hours sleep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly eight hours of sleep. Yeah, exactly. My thought is this: that you know, think of that finicky. You know, one math system is improved by you know shooting electricity in the left side, but it gets worse if you shoot in the right side. And then another math system is just the exact opposite. That to me screams that there's probably these like little things we can affect. But I'm so curious to know. When does research start to kind of pair these things up? It starts to realize that, oh, we can turn these two systems on at the same time in this interesting way. You know, is there a third point that you need to be addressing? It, it seems to be a very tough problem that I think a lot of researchers and a lot of DIY community people can start to attack. But once you kind of unlock that, like, multitasking of improving thoughts and having, you know, not too much uh, mm -hmm. decrement of, of thoughts of actions, et cetera. I think this technology like really unlocks and really blows up. And I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen in the next 20 years. I think the next 20 years is going to be more like basic things that it can do. 
but it does seem like something that, you know, if you get a ton of people interested in, in the space and a lot of research dollars go into it, if, if it gets picked up by, you know, a Facebook, Apple, Google, et cetera, I think you'll start to see some crazy advances that you and I just can't predict right, right now. Yeah, and maybe we're looking back 20 years from now and thinking how stupid it was that we are so so adverse or so nervous about this technology in the first place, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That it could t have huge, you know, very fundamental, but very awesome effects on our, on our future life. Or we might say, why did we ever mess with that? That seemed a, <laughs> a little bit uh, too close for comfort. Uh, we don't even know what consciousness is. How does the brain work? Not sure. But let's mess right, with it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, if you want to tell us how this episode messed with your brain, you uh, could shoot some responses directly to us, whether it's a correction, a question, a fun fact, or just a bit of feedback. We would absolutely love to hear about it. Right on. And you can reach us via email, might be the easiest way, at wearehertomorrow at gmail.com. On social media, you can follow us and tweet at us or whatever at W-A-H-T Project. And see us on Instagram and Facebook at We Are Here Tomorrow Podcast. Just Google We Are Here Tomorrow and things will yep, come up. we pop up. I did it yesterday. I'm, I'm not Googling myself every day, but I did do it yesterday. Um, so if you want to hear more from us, uh, we are everywhere. Podcasts can be found like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many others. Uh, if you stop by your favorite site and subscribe, we would love to hear about it. And if you stop by Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and five stars. It helps the podcast immensely. Absolutely. And if you want to hear what others have to say on this topic, we, we have a newsletter. Um, so go to wearehertomorrow.com and subscribe to that newsletter where each time we drop a episode of the podcast, we also drop an edition, if you will, of the newsletter where we pose a question or two that's somewhat related to you know the learnings we've had as we kind of start to appear over the edge of the future. And we open the floor to you to kind of get your take after we give you know one version of ours. On behalf of John and I, I want to thank you so much for listening this week and be sure to join us in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace out. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.